0: I want to slightly modify one thing that Pastor Art said this morning about Mother's Day. He was advocating, gentlemen, that you get started now to go find the card. And I've been married 31 years. And so I just want to let you in on a secret that I've learned over the years. If you go early, there's like all these cards and it's really hard to decide what card you want. So what I do now is I wait until about 10 o'clock the night before or if you want to get up early, you can do it early the morning of and you go there. And what I found is that basically you the selection has been narrowed sufficiently that it's pretty easy to take that last card on the rack. And buy it and bring it home to her and say, honey, I picked this for you. <laughs> Trust me. Trust me, you guys. It works, works. Yeah, you'll all beat me there, right? (laughs) Summer is almost upon us, amen? Wow, it's just coming fast. And with summer comes an influx of movies. There are always blockbuster movies that come out around summertime to, to take your coins. And one of the things that I have noticed about blockbuster movies is that they frequently revolve around the theme of revenge, seems to be a very, very common theme in many, many blockbuster movies. And I suppose that's not all that surprising since revenge is one of the oldest motives for violence known to man. And most of these blockbuster films are pretty violent pieces of work. You know, it wasn't long after the fall of man that violence showed itself into the world, is it? Genesis chapter 4, following immediately behind Genesis 3 and the fall of man, we are introduced to the first murder in the Scriptures, fratricide. Cain murders his brother Abel. And it wasn't long after that, actually five generations removed from Cain, that we arrive at a man by the name of Lamech, who penned the first rap song. Yeah, he did. A song that celebrates revenge. In that song, found in Genesis 4, verses 23 and 24, but don't turn there. In that song, Lamech says, I don't need God's uh, protection. I am perfectly capable Of taking care of myself. In fact, if you even strike me, if you even mess with me, I'll kill you. I'll kill you. The motive, the theme of revenge and violence. It is as old as humanity. Open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 12. Page 1136. 1136. If you're using one of those pew Bibles. Romans chapter 12. We're going to finish chapter 12 together this morning. Looking at verses 19 through 21. This is the end of the 12 part series. That we began back in verse 9. Having to do with Christian love. And noting that. As Paul lays out for us here in verses 9 through 21, a a whole series of commands or imperatives that spring forth from the transformed life that he introduces to us at the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 and 2, which derive from the power of the gospel to change our lives, chapters 1 through 11. And as we looked at this chapter and have been looking at this chapter, we we noted that it was almost as if Paul was, was giving us a recipe whereby we could, could cook up some Christian love, as it were. And so we have been looking systematically at those ingredients, and we've arrived at the twelfth and final ingredient together this morning here, perhaps one of the most difficult of all the ingredients to put into practice. This is the ingredient of restraint. Christian love is restrained, Paul tells us in verses 19 through 21. It is restrained in the sense that it steadfastly refuses to take vengeance or revenge upon someone who has done ill towards us, but instead deals with compassion and kindness towards our own enemies. Now, contextually, just like the prior week, Paul is speaking in the realm here of interpersonal relationships. When we get to the next chapter, chapter 13, he will begin to speak about the role of the government and how it intersects with evil in society. But for now, he is still speaking directly to me, speaking directly to you about the issues of how do we relate on a one to one level with those in society who are our enemies or out. To do us harm. I've been. Kind of talk about this or maybe even could say entitled this the anatomy of restraint. The anatomy of restraint. And there are really three components that Paul provides for us here in verses 19, 20 and 21. That together comprise this anatomy of restraint. Let me read the verses for you, and let's jump in together. Paul says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The first component of the anatomy of restraint that Paul gives us here, a restrained kind of love, is in verse 19, and that is abstinence, abstinence. A restrained love practices abstinence. What do I mean by that? That is, it abstains from playing God. Paul is calling upon the believers there in the church at Rome and by extension to you and I today, 2,000 years removed, to abstain from playing God in regard to interpersonal relationships. As I said, this is an exceedingly difficult command to obey. Some wonder what are the difference here between verses 17 and 19, where in verse 17 he says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Here he says, never take your own revenge. I think the difference between these two verses is that verse 17 is dealing more in the realm of insults and verse 19 here is more in the realm of injury. That is, it's a, there's the, it's been, the ante has been upped, as it were. The, the violence that has been brought upon the believer now in verse 19 has risen to the level all the way of even taking their own life. This is, as I say, probably the most difficult command to obey here. To hold back, to abstain from playing God when our life is on the line. Basically, what Paul says, very simply, verse 19. Is that in the face of direct and personal attack, we are to hold back our desire for revenge and defer to God. And defer to God. To entrust ourselves to him. Never, look verse 19, never take your own revenge. The prohibition here is absolute and it is categorical in nature. There is no exception clause built into this. Paul doesn't say, do not take revenge, beloved, except if, and then enumerate two or three possible reasons why this command would not hold. Instead, he speaks in a very direct, very absolute, very categorical fashion here. The message is extremely clear. We are not to take revenge, period. Period. Why? Why Does God put this prohibition on us? Why? The answer is given to us right here in the verse. Look back at it. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The answer to why for the believer, the follower of Jesus Christ, that we must absolutely abstain from personal revenge and vengeance is that the manner and the timing of the repayment of man's wickedness belongs to the inscrutable will of Almighty God. And he does not share it with you and I. It's as simple as that. In fact, Paul grounds this prohibition here, verse 19, in a citation coming from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy Chapter 32 and verse 35. Let me read for you that verse so you just get a fuller understanding of the thought that Paul is bringing forward. Deuteronomy 32:35, God says, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them vengeance belongs to god it's as simple as that vengeance belongs to god now here's where the rub comes i think we would acknowledge that straight up revenge has no place in the heart of a christian That kind of an attitude of, I'm going to get that person back, definitely does not portray the character and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we would all admit that. But the rub comes when we give in to the subtle temptation to baptize revenge and portray it as the just and deserved punishment that will come upon our oppressor. See, it's not that we want vengeance. It's not that we want revenge. It's that they are really evil and they deserve this. So we kind of baptize it. We become the avenger. We see this probably at a very, very early age. In the childhood practice of tattletaling. Tattletaling. You know that that's when the children are in the other room playing and one of them comes running out, all filled with righteousness. To inform you that so and so has done such and such so that you will go in and bring. Right, the law down on their heads. All children do it or try. In fact, when our children were growing up and they would come out, we would stop them before they opened their mouth and say, are you about to tell us this because you are concerned for the spiritual or physical welfare of your sibling? (laughs) If that is true, then you may tell us something. If it is not true, you must button your lip. More than one time, the eyes would fall, the head would hang, and they would wander back off. (laughs) Cattletailing. That is a baptized Form of revenge. That is, that it outwardly appears to, to be done for the sake of righteousness, but inwardly it is nothing more than a desire to do evil to one's sibling or playmate. Now, you and I are not children, and so we don't engage in tattletaling. Most of the time, we are a little more sophisticated in the ways that we baptize them, the desire for revenge. Folks, it's not our role to help God out in this area. If I can just say it that way. It is not our role to help God out in the punishment of evildoers. We may not usurp the divine prerogative of by playing God and wrecking vengeance upon those who have done us wrong. It is God's realm... It is not our realm, and what Paul says is, do not go in. Don't go there, to use the vernacular. It doesn't belong to us. The desire to obey this command actually reveals volumes about the condition of our heart. Did you know that? It really speaks volumes about who we really are on the inside when we either bristle at this Command, or we seek by faith to embrace it. John Murray, gone to be with the Lord now, but a fine Bible commentator of his day, he writes the following. Let me just read to you, and I quote him. The essence of ungodliness is that we presume to take the place of God, to take everything into our own hands. Boy, is that true. It is faith to commit ourselves to God, to cast all our cares upon him and to vest all our interests in him. That is to put oneself into the hands of God, to trust God with our future is the essence of faith and piety and to seek to seize for ourselves the divine prerogative with regard to our own lives and our own futures is the essence of unbelief is what Murray would say. And he's right. He's right. Turn with me to First Peter chapter two, page twelve thirteen. First Peter chapter two and let us see the preeminent illustration of a restrained love. A love that practices abstinence. A love that refuses to play God. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Wow. The model of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who refused to take vengeance on his enemies. Who abstained from. From seizing the divine prerogative with regard to his own future, his own destiny. And it took him all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. Turn back to the left and go to Acts chapter 4 and verse 27, page 1092. Because here we see the balance, really, of what was going on in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it illustrates for us this principle. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy sermon, Jesus, whom you have anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Wow. To the cross he went. And died a very violent death. All according to the predestined plan of God. That is, Jesus entrusted himself to the Father and His plan for His life. Now, we must not minimize this and think somehow Jesus just walks through life with His feet never coming in contact with the ground. And that oh yeah, He went to the cross and He died, but He knew He would be resurrected and and He was God and so it was no big deal. Oh, wrong, wrong, wrong. Hebrews tells us he learned obedience by going to the cross. He could have called for 12 legions of angels to rescue him, and he deferred. He abstained. He entrusted himself into the Father's hands that the Father would see him through all the way to the end. He is our preeminent example of what it means not to take revenge, to trust yourself to the Father, to to rest in the Father's care and in the Father's plan for your life. And, beloved, it is by His vicarious suffering and death that the wrath of God Almighty has been removed from you and from me. Is it not true? It was because He was willing to go all the way without hitting back, as it were, That you and I have experienced redemption. And what Paul is telling us is that we need to be willing to let God be God and deal with men as he will deal with them. To give him an opportunity. Let God decide how best to handle a situation because you know what? He might even save that person. He might even save them. Notice Paul, back to Romans 12, couches this command with an affectionate term here, verse 19, beloved. Do you see it? Never take your own revenge, beloved. He doesn't throw this word around. He he uses it carefully to express something. I believe he's inserted it here because of the difficulty of this command to us. And so, By referring to them as beloved, he is he is really bringing to their remembrance their position in Jesus Christ, that they are brethren, that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are the beloved of God and thus the beloved of Paul. See, it is only by remembering and understanding who we are, what God has done and what he has promised us to come, that we will ever be able to crucify the flesh and to resist that passionate desire to bring justice into our own hands and to seek revenge upon our enemies. The New Testament is not saying that they will not despitefully use you, that they will not seek your injury and even your death. What it says is you must hold back the passion of revenge. We must never forget the command to abstain. But it goes beyond that, verse 20. The first component being abstinence. The second component is compassion. Compassion. We are to replace vengeance with compassion. We are to replace the spirit of revenge with the love of compassion. It's not merely enough to abstain from usurping God's prerogative in the realm of divine wrath, but we must replace that with behavior that demonstrates compassion and kindness. This is a twofold approach, is it not? It cannot help, and as I was thinking on these verses, I could not help but think of Ephesians chapter 4. Where Paul gives a long list and says, we are to put this off and put this on, right? Put off evil behaviors, put on righteousness. And this is merely an illustration of that same kind of approach. Put off the spirit of revenge and replace it with a spirit of compassion. A spirit of compassion. Verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, or in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. It's interesting, Paul is citing from the Proverbs here. This is Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 and 22. And he cites this proverb to support his command for the believers to engage in practical generosity with with regard to their enemies. Practical generosity with regard... To our enemies. Now, the verb here translated feed him in its noun form, it's rather interesting. It appears in John's Gospel, John 13, verse 26, and following the noun form of this verb, and it refers to a small piece of bread. It was the sop that was there at the Last Supper, dipped and then handed to Judas, a small amount of bread. And I believe that that is insightful for us here to understand what is being talked about here when it says, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. It is not saying set a banquet before your enemies. What it is saying is give them something to eat, give them something to drink, eating, drinking, standing in as a statement for acts of general kindness. I believe that's the point being communicated here. It is that we are to be kindly disposed towards our enemies. If they are truly hungry, then give them a little something to eat. You do not have to set a seven-course meal in front of them. But give them something to put into their belly. Give them water if they are thirsty. We're to show them basic human kindness, in other words. Basic human kindness. Compassion. Food and drink standing in for all other acts of compassion. Now, the meaning of the first part of this verse, I think, is quite clear, right? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. It's pretty clear. Difficulty comes when we get to the second part of the verse, the reason for doing this, right? For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Now, this metaphor is obscure. To us moderns, we don't really know what that means. The commentators have boiled it down into basically one of two ideas. Let me just share them with you, and I'll tell you which one I think it is. Basically, they boiled it down to that the burning coals represent divine judgment. The notion that these burning coals represent divine judgment and that the idea behind this is that as we engage in acts of kindness and compassion towards our enemies and then they still attack us and they refuse our kindness toward them, that they are heaping up their guilt and that they are heaping up the ultimate judgment that will come down upon them like burning coals. That's the basic idea. Paul is not saying, according to this understanding. Paul is not saying that you do kindness towards your enemy so that God might punish them more severely. Okay? That kind of an interpretation would absolutely run counter to the passage. So he's not saying that, but according to this understanding, what he is communicating is you do kindness, and if and when the kindness is refused, it will heap up their guilt in terms of burning coals and ultimately their judgment. And there's fair amount of truth to that isn't there the problem i believe with that interpretation is it just doesn't really seem to fit the context well notice verse 21 do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good there there is a context here that that is indicating to us that by doing deeds of goodness compassion and kindness there is an overcoming of evil so i don't believe that that understanding is the best so let me offer you an alternative the alternative is to understand the metaphor of burning coals to, re, to refer to the burning pangs of shame, as one commentator put it. The burning pangs of shame brought about by our kindness and their response to it. Essentially, the idea is this, that, that acting kindly towards our enemies will lead them or should lead them to being ashamed of their conduct toward us and perhaps will lead them to repentance as we imitate our own Lord and how He responded to His enemies. It's a better contextual fit, I think. It's a better contextual fit. That is, we do kindness so that it will lead them to repentance. Beyond that, there is some There is some archaeological evidence that points to the fact that there was an Egyptian practice of carrying trays of burning coals upon your head as a sign of contrition. So some commentators point to that evidence as well and and understand that 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 the Proverbs from which this is originally drawn written back in the time of Solomon would be drawing on that Egyptian practice. Now, it's important to note here that, and I believe this second option is the right one, but it's important to note here that that Paul is not making a promise. He's not claiming that acts of kindness will absolutely lead to repentance on the part of your enemies. He's not promising you that. In fact, that should be easy enough to understand because it's drawn from the Proverbs, and the Proverbs are not what? They are not promises. Thank you, 70 of you. The rest of you missed a great class. The Proverbs are not promises. They are truisms. They are truisms. Basically what Paul is communicating here. Here it is in a nutshell for you. Okay, What Paul is communicating here is that doing good is the best means to subdue your enemy and win them over. You want to boil it all down? That's what he's saying. The best means to subdue your enemy, to win them over, is to deal with them in Christian compassion and kindness. Again, I cite the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Is that always true? No, it's not always true. But it is frequently true. Frequently true. Perhaps I can illustrate this by the life of a man by the name of Dirk Willems. Dirk Willems. Dirk Willems died in the year AD 1569. So it's that, it's almost 500 years ago. Dirk was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of his commitment to Jesus Christ, he was an enemy of the state, he was an outlaw. He was harassed. One day, the authorities arrived at his house in order to arrest him and to haul him off in chains. It was a cold morning, and Dirk escaped out the back door of his house and started off running across the field. And at the back of that field, there was a large pond, and Dirk headed out across that pond. The ice was thin and fragile that morning. By the grace of God, Dirk made it across the pond without plunging through. But one of his pursuers, heading after him, followed him out onto the ice. And when the ice gave way, underneath him. Dirk had made it across the pond and he heard something and turned to look over his shoulder. And there was his pursuer, having plunged through the broken ice and was in danger of drowning. The frigid waters. Without a moment's hesitation, Dirk turned and went back out onto that ice to pull that man from his icy death. The act of doing that, that act of compassion, enabled the remaining authorities to arrive on the scene and to take Dirk into custody. They called upon him to repent of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he refused to do so. And after a trial, a mock trial, I might add, And some brutal treatment, he was burned at the stake for his unflinching commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. The interesting thing is that when Dirk pulled that man from the ice... The man said to the rest of the party that was there to arrest him, let him go. Release him. But they refused and took him into captivity and ultimately his death anyway. Compassion may well in the providence of God lead to repentance and ultimately conversion. Of course, we have no idea what happened to that man. Whether he too became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ or not, we do not know But we do know that Dirk was a living, breathing testimony to the truth of what the Apostle Paul has said right here. Abstinence, do not take into your hands God's prerogative. Do not play God. Compassion, show the kindness of Christ to your enemies. The third component of the anatomy of restraint is belief belief. That is, believe that good will overcome evil. Believe that good will overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, verse 21. Beloved, when we respond to evil in kind, that is, with evil, we do not defeat it, we add to it. We add to it. Instead of allowing evil to gain the upper hand, we are to bring about its defeat. We are to do to gain our victory, according to the Apostle Paul, by doing that which is right. By doing that which is right. Evil overcomes us when its pressures, when its temptations seek to conform us to the image of of the world, to seek to draw us after the world. You remember what Paul said in in verse two of this very same chapter, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by how? The renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. We are conformed to this world when evil comes at us and we respond in kind. We demonstrate a transformed thinking when evil comes at us and we respond with compassion and kindness. We trust ourselves to God. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are we are called and we are empowered to live as he lived. Isn't that true? Is he not the model for our lives? Are we not to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes or no? Again, yes or no? We are. We are. We gain victory over a hostile world when we respond like Christ responded. Beloved, the gospel tells us that that right will ultimately prevail, doesn't it? Doesn't it tell you that it's not going to be like this forever? That Jesus Christ came first as a suffering servant. Yes, but he is returning again as a conquering king. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron, we're told. He will place the enemies under his feet. He will rule and wickedness will be suppressed. Do you believe that? If we believe it, then we have to act that way. We have to act in accordance with what we believe. It takes faith to resist revenge and to instead respond with compassion. That is an act of Christian faith. It cannot be attributed to the natural man. It is opposed to the natural man. The natural man responds like Lamech did. You hit me, I'll kill you. It is the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ who can be reviled, who can be shamefully used, and responds back in compassion. Do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. By the way, that is a present active imperative, which just means that it is a continual command for a continual action. Regularly, it should be our practice and habit not to be overcome by evil, but our regular practice and habit should be the overcoming evil with good. How do we apply this? Let's try to take it down a notch to where we live. This this type of transformed thinking encounters basically two types of objections. Two types of objections. The first is, I don't want to obey. That's the first objection that will be voiced by you and I, I do not want to obey this command. I want revenge. I want revenge. How do we bring the gospel to bear on that kind of an objection? It begins like this. First, we need to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. It's as simple as that. We need to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. At great personal cost and sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ overcame evil in your life. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The ultimate act of compassion. The righteous dying in the place of the unrighteous. While we were enemies, the scriptures tell us, Christ died for us. We need to meditate on the reality of that statement. It's not when we cleaned ourselves up. It's not when we became good people that Jesus just kind of helped us along and, and moved us along the track. And we went from being good now to being saved, that is not what the gospel is at all. The gospel is that we are wretched people and Christ died for us. Cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Think on these things and let it begin to transform the way we think about the world. Beyond that, if, if an attitude in your heart is, I do not want to obey this, we need to recognize that we belong to Jesus Christ. We belong to Jesus Christ. And, and you know what, beloved? Belonging to Jesus Christ means that obedience is not an option. Did you know that? Obedience to the commands of Christ is, is really not optional. There's a verse in Luke chapter 17, verse 10. I won't turn you there for the sake of time, but just listen. Jesus is, is talking about the requirement to forgive, and the, and the disciples are saying, well, increase our faith. And Jesus saying is saying, if you had a faith like a mustard seed, you could do this. And you do. And he gives a little parable about the slaves. He says the slave owner comes in from the field and he tells the slaves, hey, cook me dinner. And they cook him dinner and they put it in front of him and he eats it. And at the end, it says that, does he need to thank them for cooking him dinner? Of course not. He says they were only doing what they were commanded. Listen to verse 10. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Do not expect God to pat us on the back for obeying his commands. We are only doing what he has commanded us to do. So recognize that you belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to him. And if after meditating on the gospel, and it does not produce gratitude in your heart, and if you are unable and unwilling to recognize that you have an obligation to obey him, then, beloved, the only conclusion that one might draw from a persistent refusal to obey the commands of God is that you do not know God at all that you are not one of his children, regardless of what you say. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? Now, I understand in in the heat of the moment, it can be, I don't want to obey this. But that's not the persistent character of a child of God. So we've dispensed with that. But how about this one? I can't obey it. Maybe I want to, Lord. I understand now what you're saying to me, but I can't do this. You do not know, God, what it is like. I can't obey. Well, yes, we can. We can. And it begins by remembering our residency. That is, where is our citizenship? Is our citizenship here or in the kingdom to come? If our citizenship is here, then you're right, you probably cannot obey. But if you can recognize your citizenship is in the kingdom to come, then you can obey. It always fascinates me, by the way, to, to read at the end of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 has... Really some amazing things to say, beginning of verse 32 page 1203 if you want to flip over there. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning of verse 32 writer of the Hebrews says, "But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of suffering partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward." Drop down to verse 39. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. If we think we cannot obey this command, then the first thing we need to do is to remember our residency. Where is our citizenship? And if we can remember that it is located in heaven with God, then the things of this earth will not control us. They will not control us. These early believers, it says, they joyfully accepted the seizure of their property, knowing they had a better possession. Beyond that, beloved, we need to remember that we are no longer slaves to sin, right? Remember your residency. Recognize that you are no longer a slave to sin. In fact, Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 6, verses 11 following. He says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We have been freed. We have been freed. We are no longer slaves to sin. We no longer have to respond to provocation with force, vengeance. We can respond with compassion. It's not that we can't do this. We can do this. The Spirit of the Almighty God resides within us to enable us to do this very thing. A couple more for you. You're fighting against the attitude of, I can't do this. We need to make it a practice in our lives to eliminate exceptions. Eliminate exceptions. One thing that I have noticed over the years in my life and in the lives of the people of God is that whenever we hear a command of God, our mind immediately goes to the exception to the rule. God says to do this, yeah, but what about, and then we create this long hypothetical scenario that will enable us to evade the command of God. Nod your heads, because you do it, and so do I. By the way, that is a response of an unbelieving heart. When God gives a command and the first thing you do is think of a loophole, what you are communicating is at that moment in faith you are Or that moment in time, you have an unbelieving heart. Let's stop looking for the loopholes, for the exceptions, and let's embrace the command. Let's embrace the command. I mean, I can just hear it in the home groups, the oikos groups. The discussion, well, well, what if an escaped convict broke into your home, held your family hostage, and tried to force you to rob a bank? You know, should your wife offer him lunch? And on the, you know, on the discussion we'll go for half an hour. What a waste of time. Okay, I'm telling you, I'm putting you on notice. When the groups meet this afternoon, do not enter into those discussions. They are fruitless, they are pointless, and they are unbelieving. They are unbelieving. Okay? Sure, you can construct a scenario where you can evade the commands of God. But how about childlike faith to embrace them? To embrace them. Say, oh God, help me. Help me to do what you have said. Let me offer this last one out to you. If you're of an attitude that I can't do this, change your diet. Change your diet. As the saying goes, we are what we eat. Isn't that right? If your diet is rich in violence and revenge, it needs to change. If you are pouring into your heart and mind violent books, violent movies, violent video games, violent TV shows, you are deadening your conscience to violence and revenge. You are imbibing the spirit of the world. You are drinking deeply of the seawater of a corrupt society, and that will take its toll upon your heart. And it will seem even more impossible, even more remote. Nobody acts like that. I am the Punisher, or whatever that crazy movie is. You did me wrong. Oh, change your diet. By the way, the blockbuster films that will be coming out here soon, they're all targeted at adolescent males. Adolescent males who drink violence like water. They love it cuz it appeals to the flesh. Can't do this? Change your diet. Drink in the word of God. Be transformed In your thinking. You'll be amazed. What turned Dirk Willems back? Was he a man unlike us? What turned that man back that cold morning? It was the love of Christ in his heart. That's what it was. It was the love of Jesus Christ. And it will turn us back too. I included for you in the back of your song sheets this morning. Something that hangs on my office wall. Author unknown. It's called Dying to Self. Dying to Self. I was intending actually to read it this morning, but I'm not going to do that just for the sake of time. So I ask you to take that home and to think on that. What does it mean to die to self? To read and meditate on that. Let's pray. Oh God, our, our Father, we confess that there is a vast amount of anger and violence and spirit of revenge still in our own hearts. Well Lord, we know that to be true because just cross us and it will flare. Even among the children of God the violence that is not rare but to some degree common gives testimony and evidence to this very dark reality. Our Father, we are not like Jesus Christ. In fact, we are more like Adolf Hitler than we are like Jesus Christ. And so, our Father, we have nothing to boast in. We can only cling to the cross of Christ, our savior. We can only plead for your mercy and grace. We can only desperately desire that You would change us. Oh Lord, let us utilize the means that You have provided through the reading and study of Your Word, the worship of Your people, the service of one to another, the dying to self. O Lord, this week, some of us will be provoked. We do not know the depth of that provocation. It seems unlikely that any of us will be called upon to die for our faith in Christ, but we will all most certainly be called on to live for it. O oh Lord, help us to apply this recipe for love. That we can preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with our mouths and with a life devoted to Him. Power us, we pray. For your name's sake, amen.